0: Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. As you may know, food insecurity is an ever-growing problem in Canada. Over 15% of households reported struggling with putting food, especially healthy food, on the table. That's almost 6 million people in Canada, including 1.4 million children. On this show, we've looked at the big grocers and the role they play in our food supply. These massive companies, driven by profit, and not the well-being of our communities, they get to decide what will be available to us and how much it'll cost. And at the same time, there are other large corporations out there really messing with the agricultural end of our food chain, determining what farmers grow and how. That's what we're going to look at today. I mean, much of what we're growing in Canada, we don't even eat. Now, I know no one listening to this show is going to be surprised that big business don't have our best interest at heart or that their drive for profit often conflicts with what's best for us. We even hit on the issue of sprawl and depleting farmlands in our discussion on Ontario's green belts. But it turns out that is just a fraction of what is going on. I know this because I stumbled across a creator on TikTok who was flagging all sorts of alarming trends in the Canadian farming industry. So I called her into the studio to hear more about the aging farming population, something called monocropping, GMO seeds, and the steady monopolization of the industry into the hands of the fewer and fewer who can afford it. Ashley or queen of the herd 613, as she's known on that platform, is a self-proclaimed newbie farmer, a socialist who wanted to find a model of farming that could resist the pressures of this corporatization of agriculture, contribute to the community, and support her family all at the same time. This hasn't proven easy, and she'll explain why that is by design. Well, welcome to the show, Ashley. Can you introduce yourself to the audience?
1: Yeah, sure. My name is Ashley. My last name is Ladisser. Uh, well, if you're French, you call it Ladusard, but Ladisser is the anglified version of my last name. But uh yeah, I uh I am a newbie farmer. We uh my husband and I bought a farm in July 2021. This is kind of our passion project. Yeah, I uh do this most of my time.
0: You were telling me when I spoke to you earlier, you didn't have any experience in farming. And I won't lie, like, I've dreamed of owning a farm. Um, Santiago <laughs> talks endlessly about the entire commune experience. So he's game, but you took that step. Why? What made you get into farming?
1: It's always been, like, a childhood dream of mine. Like, my, so my mom's family um, are... Uh, immigrants from Italy, and they grew up on the farm. And so I always grew up, like, with my grandmother telling us about the farm and, like, their life on the farm, and I, like, it just always seemed, like, resonated with me. And then we lived rurally for about 10 years before we bought this farm, and we owned, like, chickens, just chickens. And so... It was kind of like the gateway into like, oh, I really like doing this.
0: Chickens are the gateway drug to nonprofit farming. I've heard that before. Chickens are literally
1: the gateway animal. (laughs) So we uh, had chickens, and then um, we decided that we just like, well, I decided (laughs) I really wanted a farm, and my husband was on board. So we sold our house and we bought this farm, um, and uh, yeah, that's kind of it. I don't know. It was just like in my in my DNA, I suppose. Is kind of like how it comes from. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The Italian DNA.
0: You're a not-for-profit farm. Right. There's some ideological drivers behind that or? Yeah. Yeah. You want to share? share. Yeah. (laughs) I'm leading you here, clearly.
1: Yeah. So we're a not-for-profit farm. So our goal really, like when we first envisioned this farm, what we wanted to do is create a system that could sustain like us living here. So like, you know, to make money for us to afford our mortgage and stuff like that, but that we didn't want it to be anything that was like, you know, any money that we were making was going to go right back into the farm. And like, we have like all kinds of visions for like community programming. We really want this to be kind of a, like a safe place for people to come and experience farming and agriculture. Like, so we've always kind of envisioned this being just like some place that people can experience agriculture. I don't know. It's like, it's hard to, like, I didn't have access to this when I was a kid. And my husband didn't have access to this as a kid. And these are both things that we really would have loved to have access to. It was just kind of like we are both very, like, involved in charity work, too. So, like, I also am the chair of, um, like, odd dog rescue here in Ottawa. And so it's always just kind of been our nature to do things that are more charitable based. And when we started this farm, we wanted it to be, not be something that we were, like, Doing as like for profit, we wanted to do it like as something that was good for you know a large amount of people, and so not for profit kind of fill, fit what we were looking to do. It also gave us access to better like to resources like grants, um, as well as like partnerships and things like that with other um, members that we might not have access to if we were for profit which is more so what we were wanting to do, like access to um, indigenous communities. They do like consultation for food forestry. We're also working with like the South Nation Conservancy, which owns a bunch of land around us. So because we're not for profit, we have a lot more opportunity to collaborate. So those were kind of a lot of the factors that weighed in to our decision. It was just kind of like what we naturally gravitated towards when we decided we wanted to build this farm into something
2: that sounds really interesting it's so different than i guess what the culture around agriculture is right now and it it sounds more like maybe what it used to be a bit closer to more connected to the community you know you mentioned that like you have an Italian background I grew up in an Italian neighborhood where like everybody has farms in their backyards and they and, you know people come together to cook the giant bats of tomato sauce around this time of the year actually yeah yeah and even like in Italy I know that there's way more of a culture of like worker cooperatives when it comes to farms and that's something that used to be more of a thing in Canada now it's all but forgotten it seems but that idea of it being a welcoming space, that really resonated with me. It's something I definitely would have appreciated. And it seems, yeah, like that stands in such contrast to the current culture, right? I guess like what has been your experience with like that other culture and like have have people been welcoming of this idea?
1: So, yeah, so we really have been like the farmers that we've like made friends with and, like, been working with have all kind of been small-scale farmers. There's not really access to, like, these large-scale corporations because in almost every case, they are corporations that own a huge swath of the land, the farmland in uh, Canada. So it's been mostly just, like, people who, like, own a small farm, like... The guy that we get our hay from, you know, like he lives up the street from us and like, you know, we help each other out. And like there's a farm across the street from him that does like small permaculture and, you know, we help each other. out. So like there's there's like a a definitely a sense of community more so driven by like need and like uh, the need for support and shared like common experience. But it is not um, necessarily something that is like accessible unless you really look for it. You know, like it's not like people are out there being like, hey, let's have like a farm meetup or whatever. Like, you really have to look pretty hard to find someone who, like, to find connections. And so that's what we've been doing. And so whenever we like have a need or we need to source something, like we need to source straw or hay or uh, we need to source, like, we were looking for, you know, uh, even if like buying livestock and things like that, all of our connections with farmers have been made organically and like as a need, like, okay, let's, we, we don't want to just buy something from you. We want to like get to know you and like have a, you know, let's talk and let's see like, how can we help each other out? But that's really the only way you can make connections. Otherwise, the community, the agriculture community, like people who are doing large-scale agriculture is, is incredibly cut off. Like there's no access to it unless you are also a large-scale producer. So that's our experience with it. You know, there are some small farms, but like it's certainly not, the majority of farm and you have to live in a farming community. You know, we live in a farming community. So like there are like small farms, but like if you lived somewhere where there wasn't a lot of small farms, like your access might be not that, not that great. I don't know. It's a, it's a mixed bag.
0: Actually, I found you on TikTok because, you know, obviously you're on political TikTok or I wouldn't have found you. Um, also could yeah. be the, <laughs> I'm a, Farmer with ADHD that ended up in my algorithm. But either way, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I found you and I learned so much. Honestly, I oh, think within so. like nine minutes worth of videos, I got a much clearer picture of the agriculture industry across Canada. There were some facts there that, you know, will work into the discussion, but you also highlighted some alarming trends. A couple that you kept coming back to that we are definitely gonna to have to hit in this discussion, but on top of the corporatization of agriculture, there's a real aging population of farmers that kind of couples into this buyout of farms. You know? Yeah. You wanna talk about that? Yes.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, so the average age, so this was from like the census in 2016. Uh, In 2020 and the average age of the farmer, Canadian farmer has like grown exponentially. So now average age of of a farmer is 58 years old. In 2016, it was like 55, in 2020 it was 58. So you know that like, there's not new people coming into this industry, right? They're just aging out. And so over half of all farmers are over the age of 55. And then the other half is split between people who are between 35 and 55. And there's only like 8% of farmers who are under the age of 35. So you have this mass exodus of farmers leaving the industry. And like the way that our agriculture system is set up is that like when the quota system, so we have something called a quota system. It's market management, so market or supply management. So basically the government was like in order to keep, you know, certain commodities, the prices of certain commodities high, we're only going to allow a certain amount of it to be to enter the into into the supply chain. So like milk, for example, dairy, the quota system for dairy originally when it was given out in the 19, I think it was like the 1960s, it was given out for free. So if you had a dairy farm, you got a free quota, but because it's a finite resource, now those quotas are like worth one cow will cost you $24,000. So like if you want to sell milk just from one cow, it's $24,000. So, I mean, you're not going to be profitable or you're not going to be able to survive on just one cow. So most dairy farms have a minimum of 85 cows. Like you're looking at millions of dollars just for your quota. So what's happening is that these farmers who are old now and are like getting out of the industry, if they don't will or like pass their, pass their quota system onto like a direct family member, because that's the only way you can get through it without having to like sell it off, they, ha- they sell it. And so they might be sitting on a quota for you know 200 cows. That's millions of dollars. So then they sell that, but who's gonna buy it? A 35 year old's gonna buy it? No. Like The only people who can afford to buy it are gonna be major corporations, right? It's only gonna be either these investment groups who buy it. And then what they do is they buy it and then they lease the property or the land back to farmers. Or they don't even do that. They just hire uh, temporary foreign workers to come in and manage the farm. So it's like, we are seeing the complete degradation of our, like of this like family owned farm. And they get away with saying it's family owned because the land is owned by corporations, but they might lease the land back to farmers, right? So then farmers are still farming land, local farmers, but they don't own the land. So there's a lot of, it's very convoluted, the whole idea. And I don't actually know if we have a real genuine picture of what the Canadian agriculture landscape looks like currently based on like, you know, who owns what. You know? That information isn't always available. like Who actually owns the land that's being farmed right now? Is it the farmers? Is it corporations? Investors? I don't know. So there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of, I think people don't, are not really fully grasping, like once these farmers who are now 58, you know, the majority of them 58, Once these farmers leave the industry, and it's not their kids taking over, because the statistics also tell us that 44% of all farmers don't use farming as their primary income, right? They do have a second job or they use or they have a full time job. Just like my husband and I, we have full time jobs. We don't use this as our primary income. And so,
0: that's unimaginable, right? Like, Santiago, can you. We talk about how hard farming is. I think everyone would acknowledge that like that's the epitome of a hard worker, right? A farmer wakes up early, goes to bed late, works all day. And then what has a nine to five job that they try to cram in as well, just because it's just impossible for a small farmer now. There's a few trends and they all equal just this capital ownership over our food supply that's pushing farmers like ashley out
1: honestly i don't i do not know how any like I'm, like we're doing small scale we chose so like our main like products our main like inventory are our animals but we've chosen animals that don't have a quota system so we have like alpacas and sheep sheep don't have a quota system and neither do alpacas um so you can like sell things like sheep milk if you wanted to Not that I want to milk my sheep, but you could sell sheep milk if you wanted to. Um, But wool, right? There's no quota system for wool. So you have access to fiber, same thing with alpacas. You can access their fiber. But like...
2: Underrated fiber. If you want
1: to... Yeah, exactly, right? And like we do everything here ourselves because if we outsourced our, our our wool, like shearing, like having our sheep sheared, I shear my own sheep. If we outsourced our wool production, our wool like processing, I process my own wool, like we, it would be wouldn't even like it would not be worth it. Like it would cost you so much money, you wouldn't make anything off of it. So we do everything here, which is labor intensive, but you know, at least we do everything here. But like if you're somebody who A doesn't have the same skill set that like maybe I do Um, or the same support network because I'm very lucky. We have, you know, there's myself, my husband, my parents live really close by, they help with a lot of stuff. And then we have friends who are like always willing to come help. One of my friends is a vet tech, like I have veterinarian friends, like we have a very, very solid network. But if we didn't have that, I, I have no idea how you'd get into this or survive doing this in any kind of meaningful way.
0: I don't think you're not supposed to have that, though. That was one of Santiago's points. It's farming only Mm -hmm. really works as a cooperative. All societies do; those are optimal conditions, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And that's like it really does need to be like a cooperative. You have to have buy-in from like a you know people in your community to want to do it. But I don't think that in this climate there is a lot of buy-in like for other people you know like we have a good community a good network that we've built over the years you know with our friends and family and stuff but I don't necessarily know that that exists outside of like what we do because like our farmer friends like sometimes we're their only other farming friends it's kind of like oh okay like not everybody wants to make those connections so I don't know it's just there's no uh there's no safety nets really for people getting into farming or getting into agriculture in general, unless you're a corporation, then the government will bail you out. So it doesn't matter.
2: (laughs) Can't help but just be so angry at like how this connects to all the other aspects of of food and culture in our society, right? Because it's like, okay, so the actual farmers are struggling, having aging, not being able to find young people who want to do it. It's incredibly difficult to get into And then these massive corporations are taking over everything as massive corporations do. And then on the other end of it, when it comes to the consumer side, food is too expensive. Food insecurity is massive. Yet we live in a country that has so much farmland. We live in the second largest country in the world. We have so much opportunity to feed everyone. And yet we're struggling so much. And... It, this really just is just such an indictment of capitalism and capitalist culture.
1: I think one of the biggest issues that we have for the, is the way in which we farm, right? Like the only method that um, governments have incentivized for the last 20, 30 years is like this like cash cropping, right? So monoculture, like this cash cropping where they only want you to produce certain things. They only want you to produce like wheat, you know, and grains, and they only want you to produce corn, and they only want you to produce soy. And there's no diversity in what we produce. But when you grow those things all the time in the same fields, all the same plant, the soil erosion, so all the soil that's, that, that once was arable farmland, once was healthy soil, completely dissolves, right? Like you can erode soil to nothing in one year. But to rebuild it takes decades. What they have done is essentially they've made it impossible for you to grow anything on these lands that are growing cash crops other than cash crops. And they are, you know, that's the only thing that you uh, will make money off of. So if you're farming and you wanna make money off of farming, you literally have to grow one of those crops. Um, There's really no other incentivized programming. They have like, you know, crop insurance and then there's like, you know, the, the grain boards. They, so just like dairy, if you grow grain, you cannot just sell your grain to a mill. Like that doesn't, you have to go through a grain board or a grain marketing board. And that grain marketing board will, has a quota system in itself and they will purchase grain from suppliers. So from farmers, and that's how you get paid. You don't get to go directly to like, to a a mill or to, like, you know, general mills or someone who might buy a lot of grain, right? Or to animal feed, right? You already, like, there's so many levels of interruption when, like, as a farmer, you have such limited access to actually getting your food out. But that's why it's incentivized because there are also, you know, safeguards in that system that, like, if you have a really crappy crop one year, well, it's okay because your corn can just go to make, you know, make ethanol gas. doesn't matter. Cow feed. Or... Yeah, exactly. Or cow feed, right? It doesn't matter. So there's a lot more safeguards in that system. But what they've done is that they've turned a whole bunch of like potential land that could be grown using like actually growing, you know, food for consumption into just garbage, garbage soil. Like you can't grow anything. You can't grow Like healthy crops on that type of soil. Because your soil is also. But you can grow their GMO seeds, right? Isn't that the point? Yeah, you can grow their GMO seeds because they are literally designed to grow in crappy soil. Designed to grow so that you don't, if you don't have a lot of water, your soil, you don't have a lot of nutrients in the grain. Doesn't matter. They're designed that
0: way. When I look at that, though, it makes me so mad because it's like even when the corporation doesn't own the farm, it's beholden to corporate and capital in so many ways, right? Through sometimes the market boards and how they operate, but what seeds they're using, it's...
1: Yeah, in- they're proprietary. Yeah. So like it's illegal for a farmer to reuse seeds, but like the seeds are designed so that they don't... They can only you can't harvest seeds from like a, a GMO corn and then plant them. They won't grow. That's how that's what they're designed what to the do. Fuck. That's why like when people So you are have to go back and buy the seeds. A hundred percent every single year. Yeah. And that's why people wouldn't talk about like the difference between like organic seeds or heritage seeds and GMO seeds. You cannot harvest seeds from GMO crops or GMO plants and then replant them. That makes yeah. me that's so, mad. so like, mad. Like I'm direct.
0: Steam right. is coming out, and I can I see know. Santiago's face warping there yeah. for those that are just listening in. Yeah, heritage, Maddening. you have to Maddening. buy heritage seeds.
1: Yeah, and so that, like, that whole system is designed specifically to keep farmers always in the negative. And that's exactly what happens. They, they borrow a boatload of money every year to buy the seeds, which costs them hundreds of thousands of dollars. Then they also have to buy the fertilizer, usually from the same company for possibly, you know, also hundreds of thousands of dollars. Then they have to buy the pesticides and the herbicides all from the same company because they service the seed, right? Like they build everything for the seed. So you all buy it and then you, but you have to borrow that money because you don't have that money upfront because it's literally millions of dollars. And then you hope that you have a good co- crop and then you just pay back your loan and you borrow again. They're always stuck in a negative cycle.
2: Oh, someone someone needs to explain to me how we're not still living under feudalism because it's just sans we like... are. <laughs> are
0: it is yeah, so it is so under these conditions it, it, and and a few more but these economic conditions it's no wonder that there's so many farmers that have their retirement plan set around selling to developers like one of the biggest pushbacks to the green belt act during its inception was from farmers who, you know, blockaded roads, Santiago, the highways, to say, you're you're killing our retirement plan. Our children don't want these farms. They see how hard it is. And we need to be able to pay everything off. Like, you can't cut us off from selling to the top bidder. And so, you know, you can't really fault farmers for that when they're put in these tight economic situations, even though you're just like, you can't sell our farmland, but the reality is that, you know, I'm looking at from 1996 to 2006, Ontario, which Ashley shared with me, Ontario has 25% of Canada's farms, and between the 10 years that I mentioned there, we lost 175 acres a day, which sounds like really bad, right? Really bad. But since then, we're, right now, the most recent report is we're now losing 318 acres of farmland a day in Ontario. So I don't know if you two want to work out what that's going to mean for our food insecurity and security. Where are we going to get our food from and what's it going to cost? If we're driving, the only people that will hold farmland are using GMO seeds and have almost complete control over the cost of our food. It's not just Galen and Weston fixing our bread prices.
1: Yeah, 100%. Yeah, <laughs> It's everybody. It really is. Yeah, I mean, the other... Like, we import 70% of all the produce that we eat here
0: in Canada. Like, we import it all from... Do we have to? Like, like I know we can't grow maybe certain... We don't have... Well, Santiago's going to tell me we can grow absolutely yeah. anything. I know that. Yeah. I know that. So I'll, I'll stand corrected.
1: We absolutely can. Yeah. I mean, we don't have to. So the indigenous people have been growing food here for centuries right they they know exactly what they're doing but conventional farming is designed for a certain type of farming but we could build food forests we absolutely could build food forests it would change what we eat like we can't grow necessarily you know avocados here and you know you know peaches and stuff like we, we'd have to change our diet a bit but it wouldn't be any less healthy it wouldn't be any less delicious it would just just be the way we think about food, right?
2: Yeah, um, a couple of days ago, we were just actually talking about that because I was saying about how a big issue in Canada is around the culture of our food, right? We expect things to be available at any time of the year. we ex- And we don't really have an identity around what we eat at all. Most people haven't really been taught even how to cook for themselves meals from scratch you know everything
0: especially in season right
2: yeah in like i was saying about how like for example squash is like one of those crops that has been very important in canada for ever and we don't have any meat meals that people eat regularly that are based around squash i cook like a really good squash curry that i i'm a big fan of why are we not like using these ingredients that are traditional ingredients of the land, right? And 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 that's the issue. Like we haven't made an effort at all to have any cultural identity around our food. Like places like Thailand, I was using as an, an example, pad thai, the Thai government invented pad thai as their national dish so that they could have something like that. Most culinary in like places like Italy is actually quite modern. It's from the last hundred years, all the dishes that we know and we we think of when we think of Italy. That's from the last hundred years, you know? And so it's like, there's been no effort to create that culture. And so we're relying on all these things, all of these imports of all of these things, because we, what else do we know? That's the only thing that we know, right?
1: I remember my grandmother when she, my grandmother's passed away, but when she would tell us about like what she would eat, like when she was a kid, and they didn't have refrigeration. So like... Every day they would make their own bread. They would like literally make their own cheese. They would make foods that they could cure and preserve and stuff. So like they knew exactly what they had and what they could make out of it to sustain themselves. And that's certainly not anything that people know anything about now. Like people don't know like how to do basic uh, food preservation. You know, You can capture food that you grow in your garden and save it, you know, and preserve it, by like canning or dehydrating or freeze-drying, whatever you want to do. But that skill set is like, it's like a lost art, right? Like people don't want to know it. People don't want to like invest their time and energy into it. And so I think part of the problem is that like, we have a short growing season. Right? Summer's like, we have, like, like a what? week. Yeah, exactly. Like, you might get like August or August, you might get like April to like, if you have like, you know, good infrastructure, you might have from like April to like October. So we have a short growing season, but if you can preserve and capture that food that you grow, right? You can feed yourself all year round, but it's a really a, a huge change in mindset in that like understanding what we have available, how to preserve it and then what you can make from it and like being okay with eating different types of food even like food foraging, right? Like there are so many edible plants that we consider weeds, like so many. And so you could just, you know, if, understanding like you can go out into like, you know, the forest are like, and just a local area of health, heck, like this, this, Side of the road has all these weeds growing on it. And a lot of those plants are edible, but yeah, it's just like people want to eat the same things, and they don't want to really learn, or they don't have the uh, ability to learn, or the access to the knowledge to learn how to like be self sufficient when it comes to food. Uh,
2: an example that comes to mind of what you're saying is I, I mentioned earlier, like the tomato sauce, right? You
0: jar that for a whole year.
2: Yeah, like I've seen like the giant, giant, giant bats. You buy all the tomatoes in season. You make like hundreds and hundreds of jars, keep it in the cantinas, and it feeds multiple families, large families for the entire year. It, it it takes one day. It takes one day to do that. And you're set for the year. And that's so, I can't speak to how much infinitely better that is than like a jar <laughs> of classical sauce at the yep. grocery store, you know? And it's so yeah, much more nutritious yeah. too. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think that's, such a frustrating part like you say that like people don't want this I think a lot of people do want this it's just where do you get this especially like I myself I'm living like I'm I'm in downtown Toronto where it's in the city we just don't have access to food and nature in that same way and because of that it's got me thinking a lot about what are our options in terms of Building more of a connection between people and their food and one thing that like comes up a lot is the idea of greenhouses and vertical greenhouses and some like modern technologies especially with what you're saying about the soil and the
0: availability of avocados yeah
2: <laughs> soilless agriculture is becoming more of a thing what do you think of like is is that kind of like i know a lot of people debate whether or not techno like technology got us in this mess is it going to get us out is modern is modern agriculture techniques is that a potential solution here
1: yeah i mean hydroponics are pretty uh like pretty popular in the like homesteading farmsteading community um but the only thing with hydroponics is that you can't grow like it's great for like a small like a family you're not gonna be able to feed like a lot of people with hydroponics so it's great for the individual absolutely um but when you're talking about like feeding a country or feeding like a lot of people. It's just not, you you do definitely need like land for that. But yeah, I mean, I don't see how it's any less nutritious. I mean, the only thing is that like a lot of the nutrients that we get in our food does come from the soil. So I think hydroponics probably uses like fertilizers and things like that, that make it uh, more nutrient rich. Um, But I do know several people who use uh, like hydroponics and they have been very happy with it. You're also kind of limited to what you can grow in hydroponics. But um, yeah, I mean, we've definitely thought of it here. Um, There is an incredible uh, facility. They have a YouTube channel. They're like, I think they're on TikTok, but I'm not sure. They um, are called Arcopia. I don't know if you've heard of them. They're in Saskatchewan. And they have a passive solar greenhouse and they grow everything from like uh, like fruits and vegetables. But they recently grew bananas this year in their greenhouse, Yeah, which is like an incredible feat. Like they're in Saskatchewan. And so they have uh, their like they have this incredible system and they've been sharing their information. But um, that, I think, is like kind of, you know, the future if we really want to get into like extending our growing season and growing nutritious food here, we, I think that's kind of the, the future of where we need to go. And it's, you know, it's got technology in it, but it's also very, it's all passive. So he uses like rainwater to, to water his, you know, to, to bring the water in. He uses fish to clean the water and everything. And, and then the water that the fish poop in he uses as fertilizer. So it's, it's incredible production.
0: Almost like a real ecosystem.
1: Oh, yeah. It's incredible. And even like he had a video, it was like minus 40 outside in the winter and the greenhouse was 24 degrees. Yeah. And he does nothing. He just has solar panels up.
0: So like between stories like that, farmers markets, hearing about, your sheep farm and alpacas some would think farm to table initiatives supporting their local small farmers may be a solution you know economically socially to to get out there and buy locally i saw you kind of hit on that yeah in terms of <laughs> that's great you know like building a connection knowing where your food comes from supporting local farmers but if we're talking about a, a large-scale solution to what is clearly a systemic problem, that's not going to cut it, is it?
1: No, definitely not. I mean, farm to table is great, exactly. Like if you have connections and you can go and get farm to table, that's amazing. But like, yeah, it's not going to feed Canadians. It's not going to feed the, our population. And what we need is actually like large investment, large swaths of investment from you know, governments at all levels, federal, provincial, and, you know, municipal governments into a protecting all of our arable land and ensuring that it can never be developed on. But then also, if you have people who want to leave the industry, that there are mechanisms for them to do so, um, without, you know, having to, you know, be, be poor or whatever, right? Like there has to be, um, there has to be some investment. And I think, So the government in like the 1970s, they basically started downloading or they decided that they didn't want to really fund or uh, which is subsidize agriculture. Um, So they started like downloading the cost of of subsidizing agriculture to the consumer, which is why we have like so many market boards and quota systems and all that stuff. But that means that there are market, that the market boards are the ones who are in charge, right? These capitalist organizations are the ones who are in charge. And there's not been a real investment in agriculture since, like, after the Second World War. Actually, probably during the Second World War, but after the Second World War, right, there hasn't, they've been divesting. Sounds like public housing. Right. They've been divesting, right? They've been trying to get it off and, like, it's, that's the problem of the capitalists. The corporations can deal with it. But you're talking about food, right? You're talking about people, things that everybody needs. Yeah.
0: That's a series of its own. That's the problem with capitalists. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, they You told an interesting story I wanted to repeat here a little bit um, in terms of the influence market boards have, and this ties into what Santiago was talking about, what kind of food we eat. Um, when creating the Canada Food Guide, traditionally, I imagine market boards were used to being listened to, and so quite often it didn't maybe genuinely reflect what a human body should consume, but... That was balanced with the needs of the economy, right? The needs of farmers to sell their product and their cash crops, and they received a little bit of pushback for once. Yeah, yeah.
1: So we, uh, so I used to work for Health Canada many years ago, um, and I specifically worked in the Food Directorate, which is like the regulating body for food safety in Canada. And uh, at the time, they were redoing the uh, food guide. And so, or the, the, well, the food guide and the food pyramid, you know, and so, um, they were having like massive consultations. It was a whole thing, but in the past, the market boards and all of these, like, you know, lobby groups were the ones who dictated what we, you know, how we ate. And I will caveat saying this, that the food guide is largely what impacts what food is accessible to indigenous communities uh, in remote areas. So they are co- intrinsically tied. So, if they, the top of the food guide is like dairy and meat, they're gonna have. That's what's gonna be provided in abundance, essentially, to these indigenous communities. And then, like we had fruits and vegetables much lower, right? So, it's it's all kind of one one system. Um, but the food guide was heavily, heavily influenced, if not designed,
0: by lobby groups. Like was I naive thinking that wouldn't be politicized? (laughs) Like I was. Food is always political. (laughs) Obviously,
2: I I want to mention a small anecdote here because a couple weeks ago I was up uh, in northern Ontario in the town of Sioux Lookout, and we—I was actually part of this workshop where we were talking about um, food, and the food guide came up, and some of the. um, indigenous community leaders there were saying about how you know there's no mention in these things about stuff like moose you know something that is a staple for them that they rely on moose meat no mention of stuff like moose meat no mention of their traditional foods at all and i mean we mentioned like dairy and like we know where that comes like the 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 dairy lobby in canada is incredibly powerful and we know that the, the the effects that that's had, I, I mean, I, I don't even know where to go with this because it's just like everything comes back to the same spot, which is this is all connected. And this is a giant systemic mess that needs to be completely scrapped. And we need to completely redesign what we're doing here, because I don't know how how much longer can we really survive on this model? I mean, we we spoke a little bit before. We started recording about food insecurity in Canada, and I mean, it's worth reminding people that like we're in drastically dire situation when it comes to food insecurity. I mean, how? I I don't even know what, what like I, I don't even know what to ask because it's just like we're kind of screwed, aren't we? Like,
1: it's so complicated because there are so many stakeholders. Like even within just like the federal landscape, like how many organizations within the government, federal government deal with agriculture. Like you have agri agrifood and agri-science, you have CF Canadian Food Inspection Agency, Health Canada, you have like your your pesticides groups, you have uh public health agency, you have uh then you have like market there are like Whole swat like whole groups of um, like departments that are dedicated just to agriculture. Like there's the dairy farmers or dairy coalition of Canada, I think is where something like that. Uh, grain farmers of Canada or grain coalition of Canada. Anyway, those are like actual government institutions. There's like the Farm Credit Canada, which is like a, a credit union, but sourced by the government. Like that's just agriculture, right? And then you then you have to think about like all the other players. Like you've got trade. You know international trade. You have um, the people working like global affairs, in, like IRCC. So you've got in, uh, immigration because you have fo- temporary foreign workers coming in. There are so many players, like so many players, and don't even like don't even get started on climate change, right? And then none of them talk to each other,
0: right? In any kind of <laughs> none of them talk to us. Right, Nobody like none of this. I love how our food and what is grown. None of it is determined, is determined by, by what we actually. What we actually need. Need for our bodies and like there are to find balance with yeah.
1: There's like literally like and they don't talk to each other in any meaningful way. Like they'll talk to each other like at high level meetings or whatever, and they'll like share decks and stuff like between like just information between each other. But there's no meaningful collaboration except maybe with Canadian Food Inspection Agency and Health Canada. But like anyways, it's 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 a complete. Uh, mess. It's like, and I think it's designed that way so that there's so many players that it's really hard to like get a handle on what's happening and who you should contact to be like, you know, upset about things. But like I did on my TikTok talk about like lobby groups, like how many agriculture lobby groups there are and how much time and energy they spend lobbying the government. And like, because
0: that's what really what those market boards yeah, they're are. They're just lobby right? groups. They're lobbyist yeah, yeah, yeah. groups that also control the quota right. system. Right,
1: exactly. Yeah. That's exactly it. That's their whole purpose, is just to lobby the government. And they will meet with government officials. Like, and people who are coming into this industry, too, like maybe working and making policies, drafting regulations, are not necessarily subject matter experts. So, yeah. So you might have like you know, somebody who's an executive who doesn't really understand the entire system making policies and regulations. They're like being influenced by lobby groups. They're having all this influence and then making policies and regulations. It's just, it's so massive. It's like one of those things that you're just like, I I don't know, you can't really start. I think like you really have to have like grassroots organizations that are like dedicated to education and to like doing what you can to like inform people and to like bring people into agriculture in a
0: way that's accessible. On mass though, right? Because at the same time we say, you know, the local farmer, like with all due respect, Ashley, your model like can't be the solution. It has to be a massive Cooperative of like-minded people with access to land and like wealth in this country, we're just seeing that that one figure that was just so staggering to me as well was that the number of farmers are decreasing while the size of farm is increasing, and with all the other trends that we've learned, we know that that means those value the mo- one of the most valuable resources we have is our food is in smaller and smaller amount of people's hands. So that's, that's again, we come back to one of those where it, it's systemic change that's needed, right? Regime change. Healthy farming, I don't think exists under capitalism. No,
1: I would 100% agree with that, yeah. It's, it's virtually impossible for, like if you do this for profit, it would be virtually impossible for you to do it ethically, in my opinion, you know. It's like, you have to buy into the system. What we do, like we've invested (laughs) literally everything, every penny that we have gets invested back into the farm. That's our choice and our, our, that's our, you know, we're lucky enough that we're able to do that. If we didn't have full-time jobs and we didn't have other, like there'd be no way we could survive doing this like full-time right now. I mean, our goal is to be able to like find a model that works in a way that we can like, you know, Stay, like, you know, pay our mortgage and stuff like that and and do this full time. That's our, our goal. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, but if you're a farmer who does this full time, I don't know, you have to, you have to kind of buy into this mass
0: farming scheme. Which brings in the discussion of not that we're going to have here, but that we'll have likely next week. And we had on, on a rant about the use of migrant workers right? So when you say it can't be done ethically, that doesn't just mean the environment and food quality or economically, but also on the human perspective. And this is all sold and bought under the guise that this is the only way farms can really operate. And if we want to feed cities, then this is the only model that works. And surely we can find something else.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, like, something to say for, like, automation, right? Like, if we could, if we could like, find, if they could work on something to make... Because farming is labor-intensive. It always is going to be labor-intensive. But if you could find a way to make it easier for people, that would be amazing. But, uh, yeah, I mean, migrant workers have been ridiculously exploited.
2: It's also worth mentioning that since we import so much of the food that we actually eat, that we're also responsible for the exploitation of workers outside of Canada too workers who are making the food that we consume in countries that do not have the same labor laws that Canada has which for the record I mean not that Canada's labor laws are in any way adequate because they're not it just seems that we're so far removed from what we should be doing and I can't help but think like of examples such as Italy where cooperatives are so much more common and where the food is also so much more nutritious, like we know that, that the vegetables that are grown there are so much healthier than the vegetables we grow here. And that's a country that's a lot smaller than Canada and has a much larger population than Canada. It's not that the answers aren't out there. It's that this is the intentional and malicious decision of how we chose to structure our country and structure our economy. I don't even know what to ask today, Jessa, so if you have a question. Well, no,
0: I think like we've come to I think the end of our discussion, but I think it was an important discussion to have, especially with Ashley here, to get that ground up perspective of how these trends in farming are playing into the food insecurity we're all most of us are experiencing and that we've talked about on the show. So I'm we've gone after lob laws and the grocery stores and those capitalists for their price gouging. And we've talked about the impacts of food insecurity with Paul Taylor before and why food banks are also not the solution. But it was interesting to see and also devastating, I think, to hear from Ashley just how many trends are out there that nobody's really acting on all that much the lobby groups that exist are not really advocating for food security, but for the well-being of the suppliers and the farmers. And although we need to look after farmers, we have to look after our food supply and our environment and our economy as well. So I learned a lot, Ashley, and I'll continue to. We'll drop your links in the show notes as well back to your TikTok so folks can get your Agriculture 101 there uh, more than we could possibly share here but is there anything else that you wanted to share with the audience that you know they need to know in terms of the agricultural industry and and farming in Canada and and how that plays into what they're likely paying at the grocery store
1: yeah Um, yeah I mean I think If we're all just more critical of our agriculture industry and like people are critical of the agriculture industry for a lot of reasons, obviously, like there's, you know, human exploitation and animal exploitation that exists within the industry. But there's also like, you know, people are kind of farmers are are really just kind of stuck where they are because everything is so expensive to change and everything's so expensive redo or to like absorb new systems or like invest in new systems and so I think if we if you are a young person and you want to know a meaningful way to help farmers or to help you know or help establish food security is like get involved if you can either in like there are cooperatives similar to what we do uh that exist you know kind of all over the place so if you have the means to do so like get involved try to try to like you know, make ethical choices, not just based on, like, you know, is this animal being treated nicely, which is, you know, an important aspect of of our, uh, of, of farming, but also, like, you know, is this farm doing harm to the environment? And, you know, are they trying to make changes to make themselves better? It's, I don't know, I don't know that there's any other major things that we can do as people right now, you know, as citizens right now, until we um, until we really have, like, some meaningful changes from the uh, from the folks who have all the power and control. You know, it's hard when you're the when you're the little guy. We could build barricades. Yeah, perfect.
2: Barricades sound good.
1: I got I've got Highland cows. They've got uh, they're like barricades <laughs> themselves. <laughs> the visual. Yeah, just tie them I, up. I, I feel covered. Nobody's gonna cross. Happening. <laughs> yeah, That's it. their names are Hagrid and Hamish, so they're very uh, you know. They suit their
0: names. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you, Ashley, for sharing your knowledge and your time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was nice talking to you. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.